So I told you I like stories that resolve, but praise God for, for this story uh, in Revelation 12 and 20. I think it's talking about basically the same, same thing. This devouring dragon tries to destroy God's people, to deceive God's people. Interestingly, the, the dragon can't bind God, but God can send an angel to bind Satan. God can bind this dragon, and he uses his angels to throw Satan and all his demons into the lake of fire and sulfur forever. That's resolution. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Andy Nacelli. Andy is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He also serves as a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church and is the author of a number of books, including The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, a new volume in Crossway's Short Studies in Biblical Theology series. Today, Andy and I discuss snakes in the Bible. We talk about why Satan appeared to Adam and Eve as a talking serpent in Genesis 3, where else snakes and dragons appear in Scripture, and why it matters for our understanding of the history of redemption, and how the biblical idea of serpents and serpent slayers sheds light on everything from Beowulf to the Lord of the Rings to Harry Potter. Let's get started. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. My pleasure. So if we grew up in the church, I think uh, most Christians uh, with that background are pretty familiar with the opening stories of the Bible, and in particular, the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the fall. And um, one of the most fascinating and maybe perplexing elements of that story that um, probably feels normal, but when you think about it, it is a little bit um, surprising, is the snake. Right? There's this character, this figure, this snake who comes in and uh, isn't just there, but actually is talking to Adam and Eve and tempting them and then ultimately uh, uh, contributes to the fall taking place. And I think if we're being honest, if we kind of step back and think about it, it is a little bit odd. It's hard to know why a snake, what's going on with that? Uh, why is he talking? Um, what connection does that have to snakes today? So I wonder, can you walk us through what, what do you think is happening there? Well, you can speculate, was the snake originally a being with legs and wings, perhaps? Mm. I don't know. Maybe. Right, because God curses right, the snake. Right. So we think of a snake as uh, a reptile that's, that's lidless and long and slithery, and it, it goes on the ground, and its snake flickers in and out and looks like it's licking the dust. You just wonder... Did the snake look like that before, or is that the result of the curse? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but we do know from uh, throughout Scripture that the, that Satan is a serpent, and at the very end, Revelation twelve and twenty, uh, it calls Satan that ancient serpent. Mm. So some people, if you read like commentaries on Genesis, they will not commit themselves to who is the snake. They'll say the text doesn't say who the snake is. But I believe we should read the whole Bible with Christian eyes, and because later Scripture clearly identifies that serpent with Satan, that we can say with confidence it refers to Satan. Mm. So my theory, my guess, is that Satan uh, used the snake to talk to Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. So he somehow inhabited the body. We know that Satan can inhabit 
people, can inhabit creatures, that somehow he did that. So I do believe that it was a real talking snake in actual history, mm-hmm. talking to actual people, Adam and Eve. That maybe had arms or legs or wings before the curse. Yeah, yeah. possible. Yeah. yeah. So would you say then that snakes today that we see around us are in some way connected to that original snake in the garden? Yeah, they all reflect the curse. Now, they're still fascinating. Like all the animals uh, are 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 fallen in the sense that they you read Romans eight the creation is groaning and, and the even the animals reflect that and um, so the, there's there's a glory that's not there as God created them so when you look at snakes today even like other animals they're still fascinating creatures that display the glory of God mm. um, we're just uh, talking to some friends about whether you should have pet snakes and. I I don't think it's wrong to have a pet snake. I would prefer not to. Um, I know I have four daughters, and they definitely would not want to. Right. I'd prefer to step on their heads. Uh, but uh, the snakes today are are beautiful creatures that display the glory of God. Uh, that's what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't say that snakes, the, the the natural animals that we see today in zoos or even in our gardens or in our houses, they're not inherently evil or more evil than another animal. I don't think so. I don't think there's biblical warrant for that. I mean, like there's some like like First uh, Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. Mm. So therefore, are all lions bad? Careful, because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, <laughs> so right. There, it's it's using uh, metaphors to show that snakes, uh, that Satan is a deceitful snake. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean all snakes are bad. Yeah, yeah. So in your new book, uh, you you actually argue that snakes and serpents and dragons kind of um, that that general concept come together. I know there are some distinctions there within those categories, but that's actually a recurring motif in Scripture that kind of pops up all over the place. And I think probably immediately some of us think of Genesis 3 um, and other passages in the Bible where snakes actually are showing up, literally. Uh, But uh, you actually highlight a lot of other examples where there's language that's evocative of serpents. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, could you... um, Walk us through a couple of those examples from Scripture that maybe are less well-known. When I, when I was studying this topic, I tried to get all of the biblical data on serpents, and I started by doing searches on all the Greek and Hebrew terms for snakes mm. and dragons, obviously. But that didn't get all the passages. So there's some passages that refer to, say, venom. Mm. Well, that, that's not a word for snake, but that's something that snakes have, the deadly snakes, or uh, referring to... Creatures that crawl on their bellies are crawl uh, so, so that sort of language. Mm-hmm. So you have to yeah. look for that that sort of language. It might not use the word snake, but like, it's like, evocative of a serpent. Correct, correct. So like uh, I'm thinking of some of the Psalms that Paul quotes in Romans three. Uh, uh, the venom of asps is under their lips. Speaking of venom, what does that say? It's saying snakes in the Bible for the most part are negative. They're deadly. They're dangerous. Watch out. Um, mm. Very few passages. There are there are some, but very few are like but primarily positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned Pharaoh as another example, mm-hmm. pretty prominent figure in the Old Testament. How how is he described in ways that connect him to this idea of serpents? Yeah. So you open up Exodus one, and first thing you learn is that Pharaoh is throwing baby boys into the Nile River to die. It's just horrible, mm-hmm. horrible. See, we know right out of the gate he's he's bad, but that, that doesn't necessarily make him a serpent figure. So what, why would I say he's a serpent figure? Why is he a child of the serpent, one of the, the seed of the serpent? Well, in Egypt, the pharaoh had right on his, his crown 
uh, uh, probably an erect cobra. Mm. Like Egypt venerated, worshipped the serpent, and they thought that the serpent was a symbol of wisdom and even deity. Uh, so they thought that Pharaoh was the supreme serpent. So when you look at the plagues, uh, it's no accident that God goes after serpents. So at one point Moses throws down his staffs and they swallow the staffs of the, uh, the magicians. Mm, right. And, and that word for swallowing occurs again after the Red Sea incident when, when the text says, who's like the Lord, mighty and wondrous deeds, he swallowed the Egyptian army. It's the same word. And so it's, it's evoking these images of here you have this the most powerful person in, in, the, in the world at that time, at least in that part of the world, who is saying, I am the supreme serpent. And God's saying, no, you're not. My snakes can swallow you. Mm. And I actually swallowed you in the Red Sea. And so here you are, this evil, monstrous dragon devouring babies. I'm going to take you down. Mm, yeah. Another example you cite is Goliath. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What's the connection there? This one's a little subtler, so it's harder to see right at first. So uh, in 1 Samuel, I think it's 17, 5, uh, it describes him as wearing scale armor. I think that's how the NASB translates it. I forget the ESV translation. But it's a word that the word scale, uh, it's a word that occurs under 10 times. I think it's seven times in the Old Testament. And every time it's referring to the scale of fish, sometimes dragons specifically. And in Ezekiel, there's a passage that describes Satan, the great dragon in the seas, as having that, that scaly, uh, that those scales. And that passage has several phrases that are verbatim phrases from the first Samuel 17 passage. Mm. I think it's connecting them, saying that here it is Goliath. He's a seed of the serpent. He's uh, a dragon figure that David's going to take down. And when David does slay Goliath, do you remember how he falls? He falls face down, face down. licking the dust. Mm. And, and then what does David do? He slices off his head. He crushes his head. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't crush, but it's, it's, yeah. it's evocative of of uh, what the ultimate serpent slayer will do to the dragon. And that's from that that prophecy in Genesis three fifteen. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. It, it is amazing. Uh, this is this is broadly defined as doing biblical theology, right? Looking at these themes throughout the whole Bible. But it, it is fascinating um, just how how biblical theology seems to view the Bible supremely as literature, and it kind of picks up on these literary connections and um, repeated words and themes that pop up maybe in very different sections of Scripture, and yet you know, there are good reasons to think that they are related or that the authors are kind of referencing things back and forth. How do you think about the, uh, when, you, when you approach a biblical theological theme like serpents, um, how do you discern when there's a connection there and when um, it's, it's just kind of they happen to use the same word? Yeah, doing biblical theology is not as objective as you know parsing a Greek or Hebrew word where it's completely objective. This either right or wrong for the most part. Uh, this is more artistic. It's literary. You're looking for patterns. So when you see a pattern, you have to evaluate. Uh, you know how weighty is the likelihood that this is something that the author authors intended, and that the that the divine author intended to be a pattern, and. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're not sure, sometimes mm -hmm. we're wrong. So you have to, when you're doing biblical theology and tracing a theme and seeing it in various places, you might say, you know what, I think, I think definitely uh, Pharaoh 
Fitz as a serpent figure. Not convinced that Goliath is. Maybe he is. Uh, there's something there, but it's just not as strong as it is for Pharaoh. But there's, maybe it is. And you keep reading. So that, that's how you might evaluate it. Um, but when you see the pattern over, 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 and over, it does give a little more weight to the likelihood that that there is a God-intended pattern. Mm. And you can just, just trace the theme of, of skull-crushing. Uh, it's all through the Bible. Uh, you read stories of, of the seed of the serpent getting their heads either cut off or crushed. And you, once you notice the pattern, you're like, oh, there's something to this. This mm -hmm. goes back to Genesis 3. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. Biblical theology, I feel like, for me at least, it's opened up a whole world of appreciation for the Bible. It's not just a book full of commands to live by. It does include commands. It's not just a book of kind of didactic teaching, but it actually is, is often painting these, these really in-depth and beautiful and nuanced and uh, literarily rich um, stories and worlds that teach us things about um, our God and about who we are in light of Him. Um, how, how, how do you balance keeping, as you mentioned, the, the author's meaning, uh, what they're, the author's intended meaning, but with also keeping in mind this, this commitment that we have to the unity of Scripture and to the divine author, that God ultimately is over all of this and intends this uh, to hang together. Do, do you ever find that those two things are in uh, tension with each other or difficult well, to so, reconcile? So, so I'd say that the human author, or the text always means what the human author intended, and sometimes more. But it's not inconsistent with what the human author intended. So sometimes the divine author uh, intends a little bit more. Uh, like, out of Egypt I've called my son, Matthew 2. I think if Hosea saw what Matthew was doing, he'd go, oh, that's brilliant. That's, that fits exactly with what I was, what I was saying. I just didn't know that detail. Mm. Uh, an example I'll give students um, to illustrate this is uh, the Harry Potter books. So there are seven of them. The first time I read those with my wife, uh, we just enjoyed a good story. It's, have you read those books? Yeah, okay. I have. They're so, fantastic. Yeah, so you read them, and it's just, you know, you, who are the characters, what's the plot, what's going to happen, and you just follow along and enjoy the story. And after we did that the first time, and we listened to Jim Dale's brilliant narration, we did it again uh, two or three years later. And I didn't see this coming. I should have. Uh, but we just started listening to book one, and immediately we kept pausing the story and saying, we missed that the first time. This is this is brilliant because the theme she, she just mentions here, she picks up on that in book three and in book six and in book seven. And we were seeing these connections because some some uh, series of books, you can tell that the author didn't plan them ahead of time yeah, and write them right, really well. Right. Uh, she did her homework. Like when, as she sat down to write book one, she mapped out the whole storyline and the whole thing fits beautifully. So when you go back and you read it again and again and again, and I, I think I've read it five or six times now, uh, I'm, I see new connections every time. That's just a mark of a brilliant author. Hmm. Now, how much more so when it's an omniscient author who knows all? He knows all things. He's planned the whole thing. He's sovereign. It's going to be way better than any human author can do. Hmm. So I'm, I think there are connections that we are blind to. We're not seeing. We're not looking hard enough, and we don't have the ability to see them all yet. But I think we'll be studying these forever, and and seeing the connections in, in scripture that God intended, and and what we're doing in biblical theology is trying to get at some of those. Yeah, yeah, that is that is fascinating. I sometimes wonder, do you think we view Scripture differently than we do other literature like the Harry Potter series, where it makes complete sense to everybody that, oh, uh, J.K. Rowling might have sort of 
uh, created these trajectories of themes and ideas that they're going to be traced out through the whole series. Sometimes I wonder if uh, we have a harder time thinking that way about scripture. That might be the case. It might be uh, some people think, well, how can you have you know forty men over a period of you know several thousand years in different cultures? How could it all hang together like that? So the the only people doing biblical theology the way that that uh, I'm I'm describing are conservative confessional evangelicals who believe that it all hangs together. It doesn't contradict. Mm. It's a, there's a beautiful divine design behind it. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of incentive to look for the try to figure out how it can hang together if you're kind of starting assumption is maybe it doesn't. Right, right. right. Yeah. So then maybe going back to another example of uh, snakes in the Bible, uh, the Pharisees is another great. Uh, very kind of straightforward example where Jesus repeatedly refers to the Pharisees and Sadducees as a brood of vipers. Uh, again, what's what's he getting at with using that language? Right, uh, and John the Baptist as well. Uh, he's he's saying these people are like their spiritual daddy, the serpent. The serpent deceives. He lies. He kills. He's 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 the murderer. The first mur- he's a murder from the beginning, and his children are like him. And because the Pharisees were deceiving people, they were putting burdens on them heavier than they could bear. Uh, they were trying to deceive, and eventually, like and like Satan, they initially tried to deceive Satan, and then they resorted to murdering him. They're just like their daddy. Mm, yeah. Another example that uh, Jesus, um, he's got these words. This interesting passage in John three, where he references back to. Um, I think Numbers 21, yeah. where is this serpent right. in the wilderness with the Israelites, they're wandering around. They sin against God, and God strikes them with a plague, I think it is. And, and then as their salvation, uh, God provides uh, this serpent on a staff that uh, everyone's supposed to look at yeah. right, to be healed. And I've, I've always been kind of perplexed by that because... I've had this general sense that serpents aren't a, aren't a good thing yeah. in the Bible, and yet it seems like God raises up this serpent on a staff literally as the salvation for the people. So you mentioned a plague. The plague was he sent fiery serpents to bite the people. So mm. he's like, they're complaining, we miss Egypt, we miss their food, we miss the comfort, we miss, we miss what was so comfortable about Egypt. And he says, so it's like he's saying, hey, you miss Egypt? Here, have have the snakes. Mm. That's, what, that's what Egypt loves. And it's, it's a judgment. And the salvation is, and here's, the Bible doesn't say this but uh, explicitly, but here's how I, I picture it, that there was a bronze, not excuse me, there was a military pole. So think of like a, and you're in a, in, a, in a battle and you have this guy waving a banner and there's a pole at the end with a, with a spike at the end of the pole. So think of that implanted in the ground and then think of a, a serpent impaled mm. on the pole. Mm. So this is a dead serpent who is bearing the curse in the place of snake-bitten people. And you look to this serpent who took the curse in your place. That's what I think John 3, 14, 15 is getting at. It's not saying Jesus is the serpent par excellence. No, no, no. It's saying Jesus took the curse in your place. Mm, yeah, yeah. That does. That helps to um, kind of explain what I think is often a kind of a confusing a bizarre uh, almost analogy, but I think when you start to explore it. Yeah, so there's, I, I read some books by some critical authors, uh, one James Charlesworth who argues uh, the opposite of what I just said and argues that serpents are primarily good, they're wise, uh, and Jesus is the you know the most excellent serpent. Mm. Ah, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, so I disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, there's also then another perplexing section in the New Testament 
uh, where Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, talks about how uh, his followers will be able to pick up serpents with their hands. <laughs> and then we have this example of the Apostle Paul in Acts 28 when he's bitten by this viper, but then doesn't seem to actually be injured by it miraculously. And so my question is, there are, uh, we probably all are familiar with this, there are Christians who cite those texts uh, and others like them in support of the idea of snake handling, mm-hmm. that, that Christians uh, not just are able to, but actually uh, it's a good thing to pick up poisonous snakes and handle them uh, as a mm-hmm. demonstration of your spirituality or something like that. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of all that? Well, uh, the text in Mark 16 I don't think is God-breathed scripture. And if that's surprising to anyone who's listening, I'd encourage you to look at the ESV study Bible note on that, or if you, you can go to the net Bible online and look at the study note at the, at the ending to Mark. So Mark nine, excuse me, Mark 16 verses nine to the end. Mm. Um, I don't think that's God breathed scripture. Mm. Um, yeah. So th- I just don't think you can quote any part of that passage to support any doctrine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that leaves us with just the incident in acts. And I think all that's saying is, Paul was doing mighty miracles uh, to validate the gospel, and and in this case, humanly, he should have died, and God preserved his life, and mm. it gave him an opening to proclaiming the gospel and staying alive and going to Rome and fulfilling God's plan for him. I don't think that's a hey, we should we should handle snakes too. Like he he wasn't actually snake handling; he yeah. got bit and God healed him. Yeah, that's very different than snake handling. So, so it could still have the maybe added significance of this is the 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 example of evil in the world and God's protecting him from that, but but it's not necessarily a prescriptive type of passage Right, so I would never, ever, ever encourage Christians to handle deadly snakes as a way to show that God's going to protect them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you also point out in your book is just the uh, connections to, um, you, you've referenced actually already uh, Harry Potter, so pop culture, but even going way back in history, um, uh, just common stories that we are so familiar with going back centuries, mm-hmm. if not millennia, that sort of uh, are evocative of the grand story of um, Satan, this serpent or dragon, and God uh, God coming and dealing with him. So I wonder, can you explain a little bit more what, what connections you see there and why that's important? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did, I, and I, I've traced English literature where dragon slain stories are prominent. Uh, I haven't done a, uh, tracing it all throughout human history. Now, I, I think uh, Tim Chester has done this recently, and it's a, it's a book that's going to come out, I think, end of 2019, early 2020, I'm not sure. but So I've heard about this book, but I haven't read it yet. Mm, but uh, interesting. I'd be curious to see that one. I think it's just tracing the stories throughout history. Um, but but if I look in, in, in English history, uh, you think of the, the classic story is is St. George and the Dragon, and you see that in various iterations throughout literature. Or you think of Beowulf, or uh, you can uh, at one point in time in America, if people had two books in their homes, it was the Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress mm. by Bunyan, and Bunyan's got this classic scene of of Christian fighting Apollyon. Uh, so just that was common literature, common theme that people understood, and then you get to a Tolkien, of course, and it becomes much more pronounced with Smog and The Hobbit, and you got Sauron, the serpent figure in Lord of the Rings, or you read Chronicles of Narnia, and the White Witch is the main serpent figure, and you've got um, oh, in the silver chair, the, the Lady of the Green Kirtle turns into a serpent at the end. Sorry if I ruined that for anyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are serpents throughout his writings. Um, and of course, in, in Harry Potter, you've got 
Lord Voldemort, who from the house of Salazar Slytherin. Yeah, and missing he, a nose. He speaks the language of snakes, uh, and he unleashes a basilisk, and he's got a pet snake named Nagini. And so the, it's, it's, it's very, very uh, in your face in that one. So my, my thesis is that that's common in literature because that's just such a good way to tell a story. Uh, we love stories like that. And the question is, why do we love stories like that? Why do we love dragon slaying stories? And I think the reason is those stories echo the one true big story of the, of the world that the Bible tells. They're all echoing that story. And you think about like big, big epic books you've read or movies you've watched, they pretty much all have that same basic storyline. Mm. You know, really bad guy, some good guys who are in trouble, hero saves them and crushes the bad guy or bad guys. I, over and over and over, movies do that. We love that storyline. We love resolution. Yeah. I hate it when a book or a movie doesn't resolve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Bible resolves. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and you're right. And that that general pattern, even if there aren't the added elements of like references to snakes or what have you, that that idea of an evil figure assaulting uh, someone else, maybe an innocent figure of some sort or just another character and then someone having to come save them does feel like a pretty pretty foundational type of story. What would you say is your favorite example of, uh, you've talked about Harry Potter so far, but maybe not that, but what's your favorite example of a, a story that you think uh, really clearly echoes this this story, the grand story of the serpent? Well, when I think of epic literature, I don't know if anyone does it better than Tolkien does in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and Tolkien's not for everybody. I'm probably going to offend someone by saying this. I Sometimes... I wonder if he was like Dickens and got paid by the word. I know that's not true, but yeah. he, he's very wordy. <laughs> yeah. I know I just offended a lot of people. Um, do, do you, are you a fan of the poems and the songs, or no, do you read no. through those pretty quickly? Uh, I, yeah, okay. I probably lost all my credibility with people now. But uh, it, it's a beautiful story and and very detailed and very long. But as you read through it, it's very clear you've got good and you have evil and you have a hero or and heroes. It's not just one hero. And that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we love that story, our stories like that, because we know there's good and evil in this world, and we need someone to save us. We need a hero. What do you think about the, the kind of, it feels like it's a somewhat recent phenomenon of stories, whether it's books or movies, where uh, they have an anti-hero, or just everything is muddled and gray. There's not a clear good guy. There's not a clear bad guy. It's very ambiguous at times. And uh, the hero that might be there is very flawed. Um, what's behind that, I don't know, interest in stories like that as against uh, a classic kind of hero story? I've wondered about that. Um, I, I, I'm very not into pop culture, so I, I, but I do read some on this. Like there's a movie that came out this year called Joker. I didn't see it, but I, mm. think, I think it's infatuated with a bad guy basically mm -hmm. right yeah and then it tries to make you feel sorry for him by learning about his past and it's sometimes we can do that with victims we can excuse me we can do that with evil people and think oh if you really understood how hard their life's been we should feel more sorry for them in light of all the bad things they've done etc um if you take that approach to satan you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. like there should be zero sympathy for Satan, like, oh, he was he was an unfallen angel at one point, and he was so beautiful, and maybe he just had a hard life. Misunderstood. And, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Like a lot of Disney princess movies are like that. Oh, my life's so hard, and mm. I have this provincial life. I'm so misunderstood. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I wonder if the reason those movies are popular is because people are morally, they're filled with moral ambiguity in their worldviews. And they think that a story with clean, clear, good and evil categories is, it doesn't fit their worldview. It's like, that's not how the real world works. Mm -hmm. It's it's muddier. And and movies that don't have, have the clear, good and evil, movies that have moral ambiguity, movies that don't end with the resolution, that's just more like real life and that's therefore better art, et cetera. Maybe that's part of Mm -hmm. it. I don't know. I'd have to talk to the creators. Do you think there's any truth in that, that maybe not including Satan, uh, but for the rest of us, for people, there is ambiguity and you know, people who are purportedly evil, you, you do when you learn more about them, there are things in their life or, uh, that, that maybe do help to explain where they got, where they ended up. Yes. And I know it's, it's easy to pick on, on Christian films like you know, Facing the Giants and those sorts of things where I forget the storyline, but you know, some guy has a hard life and then he wins the football championship, gets a new truck and his wife gets pregnant or something like that. (laughs) So yeah, we, we laugh at those because I think that's not always real life. Uh, Usually that's not just how it works. Uh, So that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you read a story or or watch a story and the, the creators of the story, the authors, the producers are intentionally trying to get you to think in an evil way like to root for someone to commit adultery, to root for someone to do evil things because the whole way the story is framed is you're rooting for that guy to succeed or for that woman to succeed. That's evil. That's evil. And and we need to learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And good storytelling does that in a way that engages our affections so that we walk away loving what God loves and hating what God hates. If you watch a movie or read a book and you walk away confused, maybe even torn the other direction, I'd call that an evil book or evil movie. Mm. Yeah, and that's why the, this, uh, as you draw out, the, this idea of serpents, whether it be the deceiving snake or the, the consuming, devouring dragon, is so helpful because it, it's this kind of unambiguous picture of evil, and we see it crop, out throughout, throughout, crop up throughout all of Scripture repeatedly. Um, what, what would you say then? What, what's the practical takeaway then to a better understanding of uh, this scriptural theme? Well, first, uh, before applying it, you have to have the, the concept that Satan is a serpent. That's a big category. And he has two different modes of being serpent. He can be a deceiving snake. Or he can be a devouring dragon. He can try to lie and backstab, or he can just flat out assault and, and, and rage after you. And... His strategy uh, will will vary, and in some cultures, he's more in your face at times. Others, he's more deceptive at times. That's why I think, for example, when you think about uh, demons, Satan's minions, they I think they work differently in different parts of the world. They have different strategies. Like in the the cultured, you know, West, uh, it's it's one of the strategies is to make people think that the demons are ridiculous. Of course, they don't exist, and other places. Uh, it's overplayed and it's, you know, that's all of life, you know, there, so different strategies. So uh, the takeaway practically is knowing your context, just knowing wherever you are in the world, Satan is a deceiving snake and a devouring dragon and he's after you. You're his prey. He wants to devour you. Therefore, you need to be on guard and be defensive, resist the devil and be offensive. Uh, you, you, don't just go on the defensive. Mm, so that's yeah. the armor of God in, in Ephesians 6. Yeah. Yeah. And then just maybe as a last question, walk us through what we learn about the uh, the future 
uh, for this snake, Satan, in the book of Revelation. Yeah, so I told you I like stories that resolve. I praise God for, for this story, and we're going to be praising him forever after the fact, too. Uh, in Revelation 12 and 20, I think it's talking about basically the same same thing. Uh, this devouring dragon tries to destroy God's people, to deceive God's people. And interestingly, God is able, so the, the, the dragon can't, can't, uh, can't bind God, but God can send an angel to bind Satan. That's how Revelation 20 opens. He sends mm -hmm. an angel, and the angel is more powerful than Satan to bind him. God could bind this dragon, and he, and he uses his angels to throw Satan and all his demons into the lake of fire and sulfur forever and ever. That's resolution. Well, Andy, thank you so much for uh, taking some time today to, to talk us through this fascinating biblical theme that I think uh, probably most of our listeners didn't even realize was as significant as it actually is in Scripture. We appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Andy Nacelli on snakes in the Bible and why they matter for our understanding of the story of redemption. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, a new volume in the Short Studies in Biblical Theology series. For more interviews like this, be sure to subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.